Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Today, my guest is the Secretary of the Department of Public Safety in the state of South Dakota, Craig Price. Uh, I have to say, I've had the tremendous privilege of uh, working with Secretary Price uh, back when he was uh, in charge of the South Dakota Highway Patrol. Um, and uh, I made the trip to Pierre, South Dakota uh, uh, a couple of times, and we spent uh, a substantial amount of time together. Um, and he is just uh, a tremendous individual, uh, a tremendous citizen, a tremendous public servant, a man who has dedicated his career uh, to keeping people safe, um, in, uh, primarily in law enforcement. Uh, he has uh, traveled the gamut. Uh, from correctional institutions uh, where the bad guys go to be locked up uh, to now being the secretary of the Department of Public Safety for the entire state of South Dakota. Pretty cool. Uh, wait till you meet him. Craig Price, welcome to The Indispensables. Wow, Bruce, I appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with you today. And that introduction is, is very kind and flattering. And I certainly appreciate the opportunity to visit with you today. Um, well, uh, uh, I'm just, uh, it's such a privilege to have you and, uh, um, and, and I just have so much admiration for you and, uh, uh, every time I've spent time with you, I've just been blown away. Uh, so, uh, uh, let me just start with this. I mean, you know, people, the listeners are like, well, how do you get to be the secretary of the department of public safety? You start out as a correctional institution, uh, officer, and you end up uh, in charge of, of, of all of public safety for the state of South Dakota. Uh, tell us about your career path. Yeah, well, I've, it's certainly been a long one. I've been in the business now for about 26 years. And, uh, you know, it all started when I was a kid. My dad was a full-time military, and uh, he was a recruiter for the South Dakota Army National Guard. And so he was always wearing a uniform at home, and it just, it always stood out to me that you know, that's something I would like to do, which would be in public service where I could go to work, I could earn a wage, uh, someday maybe earn a pension if I was able to be, able to be so fortunate. Um, but at the time, I really didn't think about, you know, all the, the great benefits that come along with and the rewards of serving the public. And so when I was in high school, you know, my dad said to me, he goes, I got, there's an option for you. I can't afford to send you to college. So if you want to go to college, I will buy you a car but you're going to have to join the National Guard uh, to help. They can help pay for college. And so when I was 17 years old, I joined the National Guard and it was a, a career that I had held for nine years. And it really, you know, fulfilled the start of my career as far as being involved in public service from the perspective of uh, being a uniform, uniformed officer, you know, and an enlisted soldier in the National Guard. And so I went, you know, my one weekend a month, two weeks in the summer, came back, went to college. And when I went to college, I thought initially I wanted to be a pharmacist. You know, believe it or not, I wanted to be a pharmacist. And I went well, to that's school. another way to serve the public. Well, true. And I and I go to college, and after my first semester, I go and meet with my advisor, and he's looking at my report card, and he says, "You might need to think of a new path." 
<laughs> oh, gee whiz. And so, you know, I kind of regrouped. I knew that, that college was for me and I knew that, uh, I, that I wanted to continue serving in some way. And so I thought I would be a game warden with, with the game and fish department for the state of South Dakota. So I have a wildlife management and a biology degree with a chemistry minor and graduated from college. Of course, December 1996, I had opportunities to apply for different jobs. It was really, really hard uh, to get a job back in those days as a conservation officer. And so I applied with them, but I also applied with our state department of corrections to be a correctional officer. And believe it or not, I got hired. I'm fresh out of college. I you know, had some part-time jobs. I was a soldier in the National Guard. And I got hired by the Department of Corrections. By the way, just uh, uh, so you were you did National Guard service for nine years. W- what did you leave as? I le- I left as a sergeant. Yeah, nice. and, and was your old man uh, uh, mighty, mighty proud? Yeah, he was proud. I think he probably would have liked me to do the twenty years. But as as I progressed towards the end of my National Guard career, I was also a state trooper with the uh, Highway Patrol, and I had to work every weekend or every other weekend with them. And so it was just tough to balance my guard duty along with with my my state trooper duty. And so I had to make a decision if I was going to stay in for 20 or get out after nine. And uh, I made the tough decision to get out. And ironically, Bruce, I joined the National Guard in February of 1991, which was the day the first Gulf War ended is when I joined. Wow. Just by happenstance. And then I got out in February of 2000. And it was about a year and a half before 9-11 took place. And so I was I was never deployed, um, certainly would have been prepared to, to be. And a lot of my friends ended up being deployed, but but I never was. And so uh, so so uh, you were in the National Guard and while you were working as a corrections officer also. Right. That's correct. Yep. And, and, and how long were you? Uh, and tell us about that. I mean, that you don't hear that every day. Well, no, I was a, you know probably 22 years old at the time. And what I did was I drove uh, minimum security inmates from where they lived on a, on a state facility down to the state fairgrounds, which is about an hour drive one, one way, um, six days a week so they could prepare the state fairgrounds for the state fair at the end of the summer. And so here I am driving a school bus, which I had the endorsement to do with 20 to sometimes 30 minimum security inmates behind me on the bus. And then I was responsible for them all day long. And what a what a unique and great responsibility that I had. And in hindsight, knowing what I know now, I'm sure they pulled a lot of sh- a lot of shenanigans over on me. <laughs> you, you think you think they got the better well, of you? Somebody? I, I think there might have been a time or two that they did. <laughs> uh, but so you were 22. I mean, was that frightening? Yeah, you know, I think it was more frightening for my grandma and my mother. But uh, you know, I again, I had been in the military for a few years at that point. And, had college underneath my belt and 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 I was always a little bit I was always a little bit more mature for my age than maybe I would maybe I would think kids are of, of today. Um, I when I went to the guards and, and when I went to college off my own just helped me grow in immense ways that uh, I was out there on my own ready to ready to go to work. And 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 so how long were you uh, working in the Department of Corrections before you moved over to the Highway Patrol? Yeah, so I was a correctional officer for about. Oh, I suppose eight or nine months when I got hired by the Highway Patrol and started the academy. And so it would have been the October, it would have been October of 1997. I got hired by the Highway Patrol, uh, did that for a couple of years as a state trooper out on the road, you know, working crashes, DUI investigations, drug cases. I mean, I was just having the time of my life. <laughs> and, you know, I had a college roommate that was a trooper in the class ahead of me. And he said, Craig, I don't know exactly what you're going to do or where you're going to go with this college degree. 
But I'll tell you what, being a state trooper is phenomenal. And so I applied, was fortunate enough to be hired. And believe it or not, I had a college roommate at the time that looked at me. And when I got hired by the patrol, I was so excited and so happy to, to, to have this opportunity. And he told me, wow, I didn't see you doing something like that. I thought your skill set was much higher than being a state trooper. And higher. Been, yeah, higher. And, and I've never, ever let that go, uh, even to where I'm at today, because I think my college roommate at the time would think that my current position that I, that I panned out okay. And uh, I'll say, I don't know if you're still in dialogue with that person. Yeah, a little bit on Facebook and social media, but but not a lot of direct. You know, he had his family and I had mine and we kind of went our separate ways. But, 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 but you know, because what's so interesting, I, I, I think this is similar to teaching in my view um, and uh, and other areas of public service um, that they're underestimated by too many people in the public and that um I mean, my view is if you are a law enforcement official, um, you know, not to get too uh, uh, intellectual, but, you know, Max Weber would say what defines the state is uh, those who have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Um, and, And that is such a profound responsibility, just as, in my view, teaching children is a profound responsibility. And, um, you know, there's just, uh, you and I have talked about this privately, you know, this sort of uh, loss of, of a sense of civic responsibility. But man, going into law enforcement, what we need is more people like Craig Price going into law enforcement. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, it, we're certainly, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are highly qualified and would do, be great at being law enforcement officers. And we're doing everything we can to recruit them. And then once we get them on board, we want to retain them and keep them around for 25 plus years so they can have an entire career. Um, Because there are so many ways that you can have an opportunity uh, to impact not only your community, but your state and the citizens that visit in really a profound way. Because one thing I've told troopers, you know, my entire career and, and as it progressed, I've had different leadership positions. But, you know, the one opportunity that you have to have an interaction with somebody while we see it every day and it can somewhat become routine and regular, it might be that person's and probably is that person's only contact they may ever have with a cop. And so it's really, really important that we're professional. It's really important that we're polite. It's really important that we're respectful. Doesn't mean that we take grief or, or you know, get beat on by somebody and not be when they're not showing us any respect. But we always need to be able to give that respect to people because. You never know who they are. You never know what type of day they're having. You don't know where they were at yesterday. And uh, it's important for us to do this job right because it's all too unfortunate. And we see it in the news more than probably ever before uh, when people don't adhere to those high qualities uh, and do things that they're not supposed to. uh, It gives a black eye to law enforcement across the whole country, which is unlike a lot of other professions, I would say. Um, If we have a cop in you know, some other state do something that's just absolutely horrendous and makes the news. Um, it's a reflection on all of us. And we take that serious. And I think that's why it's so important for us to take that job seriously at home and give every piece of us uh, to those people that we're interacting with every day. Because again, it might be their only interaction with us. Yeah. And the highway patrol, of course, you get pulled over for speeding or something. Nobody's happy about that. Um, and, uh, but, you know, and one of the things that's interesting, I think, uh, you know, that you see a state trooper and, and they they might be vested and they, they, they got a taser and a 
uh, handcuffs and a gun and a radio and, you know, uh, and, and, and here, you know, there, there, it's an armed response potentially. <laughs> and, um, and, and when I see, uh, uniformed, uh, men and women, uh, I feel safe. Um, and maybe that's a position of privilege. Uh, but certainly, um, I, I, I think it's such a big responsibility. And one of the things I love about you is how much you own that responsibility. And of course, um, you know, you ended up being superintendent of the entire, uh, uh, highway patrol, but let's, let's, let's take the journey. So, so you're, 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 you're out on the highway, uh, vast highways, I might add in South Dakota, vast highways. And, and most times you're by yourself, you know, that's just the way it is. And, uh, me being a, a somewhat of an introvert, I didn't mind that. In fact, I kind of reveled in that situation and, and took the opportunity to just, uh, really tried to make an impact on my local community and where I lived, which is down the Southeast part of the state. You know, we were there for my wife and I, we were there for about, Oh, probably a year. She was going to grad school and I was being a trooper. And uh, Bruce, I still have some of the best friends that I've ever had in my life that still live in that community. And I was only there for a year and it was over 25 years ago. Um, so it's just really connected. Really connected. Yeah. And, and we encourage that of, of all, all of our folks. And, you know, when I got into law enforcement and corrections and I didn't, you know, you'll hear a lot of people talk and I'll say it too, the pride you get back from giving the service to the community. I got into the world, into the job because mostly I just needed some work. And I had a friend that said, this is a lot of fun and uh, I think you'd be good at it. And so I took that advice and applied and, but I'd tell you, over the last 20 years, the positions that I've held, you know, I've been a state investigator with the Division of Criminal Investigation for about 12 years, held some different positions of leadership in there. Um, and then in 2011, I became the, the head of the, the superintendent of the Higher Patrol, which is the colonel. It's the highest ranking officer in the Higher Patrol, which I had. I held that position for about eight and a half years. And, and, and it was just a phenomenal opportunity, I felt, to not only share you know, my beliefs and philosophies and how I thought the organization should run, but really just the opportunity you have to impact people at a higher level every single day. You know, if I can have 200 troopers performing in the manner in which I thought I thought was successful and had experienced success in my past, the organization is just going to flourish. And, you know, we really take pride in hiring the right people, giving them the tools, giving them the right training, and then setting those expectations of what we want from them and then holding them accountable to them. And it's amazing how well people will perform uh, when that's in place. Yeah. And I want to talk with you about that because uh, I believe it's accurate to say that your uh, period in command of the highway patrol was immensely successful in terms of your uh, metrics and uh, in terms of your what I would call negative error rate, which is there were not a lot of problems that occurred on your watch, which is really amazing. But I don't want to I, I don't want to leave behind because um, I think a lot of people are would say, wait, this guy was a special agent. You didn't talk about that. <laughs> so what's a special agent? And then you were a leader of special agents. Sure. Um, and, and I find that um, uh, a really cool part of your uh, career path. And, um, you, you know, investigative police work is so interesting and overlaps with um, locals. It overlaps with feds and, and so on. Um, so maybe you can just explain a little bit about that work. 
Absolutely. I've been so blessed to have so many different cool jobs within state law enforcement. Uh, I was a trooper for about two years. Um, and then I had a wild hair idea that I thought I, I really wanted to be a state investigator. And a college degree was required at the time to be a state investigator, which I would always explain to people that might not know what the state police. I was like a detective for the state police or an agent for the FBI at, at the federal level. I, I lived in South Dakota and worked drug investigations for about three years. And then I worked general criminal investigations for about three years before my first promotion. And so in those six years, I really investigated felony crimes all across the state uh, from, you know, a, a, a relatively minor drug investigation uh, up to and including homicide investigation. I, I've had homicide investigations where I've been the case agent before. And, you know, opportunities to really work in that situation, you know, where you're really dealing with the worst folks that our society has to offer really challenges you to make sure you stay focused on what you're there for. But I mean, there are so many stories that I, that I could probably tell in my time as an investigator that would take up way more than this podcast has about the positive influence that I've been able to have through my work on specifically victims of crime. Um, and it gives me goosebumps when I talk about victims of crime because they don't have anybody else a lot of times to do their work for them. And they don't a lot of times have anybody to speak for them. And I always felt that as an investigator, it was my job to go out and find what the truth was so that they could get the result that they deserved. And when I became the superintendent, we passed those philosophies on and started some programs that were were similar to that, that really helped out victims. But another interesting part about my time. I'm yeah. sorry. I, I just want, so can you give an, I, I, I want to get to the, to the other interesting thing about your time as a special yeah, yeah. agent. Um, but, but do you have even one goosebump story about uh, having an impact? Um, yeah, I'll tell you there, there was a homicide case that I worked in 2005, I believe um, where there was a group of individuals at a party one night, and one of the individuals brought a package of marijuana to the party. You know, I can't remember the exact size, but he brought some marijuana to the party, which it's illegal to have marijuana in our state still. So it certainly was back then. And so they're drinking and, and partying and listening to music. And there's probably, I don't know, six or eight people at this party. And one of the individuals steals a little bit of that marijuana from this guy who brought it. And did it in secret. The guy didn't see him do it, but he knew in the back of his mind that this is the guy that probably took my marijuana. And so he confronted the guy on taking his marijuana. And the guy denied it, said, I didn't take your marijuana. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're drinking and intoxicated and all, all the sorts. Well, this guy who, uh, who, who was the, the guy who committed the homicide walks over, stands in front of the sink, takes a fillet knife out of the sink. And walks up to the guy and says, I'm going to ask you one more time, where's my marijuana? And the guy says, I didn't take it. And so he then commits a homicide and, and stabs the guy in the throat and he eventually dies right there. Well, this guy who committed the homicide went on the run. I mean, there's no cops there when this thing takes place. The cops are then called. And so he takes off on the run. And I live in a town about 140 miles or so from this town where this took place. And so I got called, responded, was the case agent. Me and a, my partner, who I continue to work with this to this day, you know, we tracked it down. We got arrest warrants. About three days later, we tracked this guy down over in Minnesota. 
We get up in the middle of the night. My partner and I drive to Minnesota. I meet with the suspect. He meets with the suspect's girlfriend. And we want to solicit their stories. And right. if they're telling the truth, their stories are going to match. But if they're not telling the truth, the stories aren't going to match. And so after about, I don't know, two and a half or three hours, uh, the guy finally confessed to me that he had murdered this guy. And the part that I'll never, ever forget is I had built such a rep rapport with this guy to where he felt comfortable telling me that he had just killed somebody a few days earlier, knowing that he's probably going to go to the prison for the rest of his life. And it's not like you're waterboarding the guy, right? You're oh, just, no. you're using basic relationship building technique in order to get this guy to tell you self-incriminating information that's going to land him in prison. Absolutely. And and before he confessed, we were in the, he wanted to go out in the garage and look at his vehicle because he had taken a lot of pride in this vehicle, painted it. Well, it was part of the evidence that we had then seized. And he goes, if you let me look at the vehicle and if I can go out there, I'll tell you what happened. And so we go out in the garage. He's, he's I think he is handcuffed in the front, relatively bigger guy. But he and I are sitting on the stairs together, looking in the garage at his truck. And he's smoking a cigarette. And he said to me, he goes, I want to ask you one thing. I said, well, what's that? He goes, what's it feel like to sit next to a killer? And just froze me. But we had developed such a rapport at that point. I, I just said, you know, it, it really doesn't bother me that bad. You know, we're here to talk about what happened. We're here to figure out why it happened so we can best move forward. And then he went on and told me this whole story about how he had committed this murder. And I'll tell you what, Bruce, when we went to court, you know, in the days and months and you know, weeks and months after that, when I would see him in court, he was respectful towards me because I was respectful towards him when I had met with him to go through this investigation. And it, it, it gave the family of that victim some relief knowing that we had found him that we had secured enough evidence to where this guy would go to the penitentiary for the rest of his life, which is what he deserved. I mean, he, he murdered a guy. And so. Absolutely. And yeah, what I find compelling about that, of course, and I know you're, you're, you, you always or, or often emphasize the impact on the victim's family, which I think is, is, is really says a lot about you. But, um, but I also love the fact that the techniques that work, in real life are not hammering someone. It's treating them as a human being and building a relationship with them and then getting them to tell you stuff that they don't really want to tell anyone. That That's right. I mean, it, and it took several hours to get to the point, you know, initially he wasn't telling the truth, but we had secured some evidence so we could, we could confront him on some of the lies that he was telling, which, which is always good to know when you have some of the facts that you're interviewing somebody and they don't tell you the truth. You can confront them on them because they, they believe that you know more than you maybe do actually know. Maybe right. not. But uh, that building rapport and treating somebody with respect, that's that's what I go back to, the message that I always gave the troops and still do to this day. He didn't deserve any respect, right? I mean, this guy's he's a, he's a, a parolee. He's absconding from parole. He murders a guy. He doesn't deserve respect. But you know what? I gave it to him. And he owned up to what he did. And I and I respect that. I mean, I don't like what he did. I certainly would never approve it. But I respect the guy for being honest with me. And still to this day, I have a quote on my computer monitor, which I'm looking at right now. I've had it here 
ever since I can remember, and says communication builds trust. Doesn't matter if you're dealing with a murderer, doesn't matter if you're dealing with a coworker, doesn't matter if you're dealing with someone at home. If you can communicate, you can build trust with people. And that's how, you know, you can achieve some pretty cool things, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's so simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. Right. Um, so so you're so good at this that they put you in charge of other special agents. They did, yep. Then I was then I was for a period of time my supervisor got activated to to go over to, to war. And so when he was gone, I was the acting supervisor for a group of special agents in the northeast part of the state. And, you know, somehow that was successful. And then I was uh, I, I interviewed and applied for a position here at headquarters in Pierre to be the, the director of the state crime lab. And uh, I got that opportunity. I was a state crime lab director for five years, which I'm telling you, the amount of work and the evidence that you see come through a state's crime lab from all law enforcement is just amazing. And you don't. What I lost at that point was the the positive feelings that I got from helping people directly to where I get the positive feelings of my team helping people directly or even indirectly in some cases. Um, yeah, so you go, I mean, it's very different to go from, so you're managing special agents, they're doing crime investigations and you're trying to teach them how to balance confronting somebody about a lie versus building rapport so that they're willing to confess to you and that all that stuff and also making sure they're checking all the boxes and treating people with respect, but also uh, enforcing the law and uh, and tracking down bad guys. So you but you go from that to managing a bunch of lab technicians. That's basically, right. That's right. right. So I'm still a special a supervisory special agent because it was all within the Division of Criminal Investigation. But I went to manage for the most part and a couple, uh, a couple special agents, one in particular. And so the opportunity that I had to do that was just to really expand my skills, not only in my knowledge of what forensics and law enforcement, how the bigger picture works together. I was able to really work a lot more with prosecuting attorneys. I was able to work with detectives from other departments. And so it really, I think, also in the opportunity I had to supervise and manage civilian employees was phenomenal because civilian employees are different than law enforcement officers. And I had to have some very, very hard lessons learned to become successful in achieving, you know, to move on to my, to the next opportunity that I had. So, yeah. Well, we how would you distinguish civilians from uh, uh, from police officers in terms of the difficulty? Is it that they 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 they, they don't automatically take authority for granted, or you are uh, you're well on your way to you could do this, Bruce? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. So what I found is that, and and it's it's true. Law enforcement officers will will do what you tell them. And then they might ask why, but it'll be later. After the event's over, they'll they'll maybe ask you why later. Um, whereas civilian employees, it's it's typically not a real crisis that you're working in. And so if you're giving them directions, they might want to ask why up front. And so <laughs> it's just it's an adjustment and it's a communication change. Um, but nonetheless, people are people, and they all they get into that work. The public servants that are in in, in criminal justice services. Uh, by far and wide, all want to do a really good job. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, along right around that time, you're starting to have the introduction of DNA evidence and right. Yep, absolutely. We had, we had a DNA lab. We have the CODIS database, which is 
anytime you're arrested for a felony in the state of South Dakota, you're, there's a DNA swab taken that's entered into a database. And so if there's evidence collected from a future scene or a past scene that has never been matched to somebody, if that's collected and submitted to the lab, they can run the DNA profile on it and compare it to the database. And there's been some connections, several connections, by the way, that have been made where um, people who committed crimes in the past have been found because they were only arrested for a crime sometime in that fu- in the future. So, so that's like cold case. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yep, cold case. Um, and, 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 and along the way, I mean, are you developing your philosophy of leadership? Uh, and of course you're trying stuff out. Uh, but I think knowing you, you came in with a pretty strong true North, maybe because of your parents and the way you were raised and the way you well, think, yeah, but, I, but tell, tell about your leadership approach. Yeah. So I, I've, I've always felt like I've had a pretty true North. I mean, I was, I was naturally a leader in high school. I mean, Kids, re, you know, kind of gathered around me that were in my grade to do certain things. It's always been natural for me to be in a leadership role, and I and it's something that fits my personality very well. But I'll tell you what: when I took over the crime lab in 2005, I was not prepared. I was not prepared to lead civilians. I was not prepared to leave to lead an organization, and without having a very strong support system above me to help guide and mentor me, along with the experiences that I had where I just had to learn by fire. Um, I read so many books, Bruce, uh, <laughs> when I, when I started and when I was a few months into that job, because quite frankly, I needed to learn a lot of things that I thought I already knew and I didn't. And so I went to leadership training opportunities. I read leadership books. Um, I went to the FBI national Academy in 2008 for three months at Quantico and Quantico and took you know, some graduate level classes on leadership and executive leadership. And in fact, not all that long ago, I was looking at one of my feet and one of my papers that I wrote in one of those classes, and it was about setting goals. And you know what I wrote back in 2008? Tell, one tell. My, one of my goals was to be the cabinet secretary for the Department of Public Safety. And DCI wasn't even a part of public safety, but I wrote that down in 2008 and took a lot of luck and a lot of great people surrounding by me to and, you know, it's a very supportive family to get me here, but it's just funny how things work out. Yeah. Well, uh, nothing like setting a goal and then uh, keeping your eye on the prize. And, um, and, and one of the things I think that's interesting about your career, because, you know, to be a cabinet secretary, of course, that's uh, a political appointment. And yet uh, your career has not been one of, you know, grasping and lobbying and networking. I mean, of course, you have a tremendous network, but the reason is because you have served and served and served. I mean, you're a classic example, in my view, of somebody who the reason you have so much influence with people is because you have so consistently delivered for people. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And that's, I've had people ask me that before too, because certainly the position that cabinet secretary is an appointed position. I'm on the governor's cabinet, uh, governor Nome here in our state. And I'll tell you what, I just love working for her. But prior to becoming the cabinet secretary, I was the colonel of the higher patrol for again, eight and a half years. And we had a meeting where we were transitioning from governor Dugard to governor Nome. And we were talking about public safety and all the things that we do in this transition meeting. I was talking about the highway patrol, talking about some of the things that we've been in the past, kind of the goals, the ideas, our budget, all those things. And I didn't really know the governor. I had met her one prior time. 
uh, in my career. It was for a very short drive in my car in 2011 during a flood. I had to drive her from point A to point B because she was in Congress at the time. And so we just met very briefly. And it was after that meeting, Bruce, where she asked me if I'd stick around for, for a quick discussion. And we visited and she ultimately offered me the position of cabinet secretary. And the reason is because of what you just said. She goes, you know, we didn't really know each other, but she knew a lot of people who had worked with me in the past. And so, you know, I'm very thankful for those people for, for saying some, you know, very confident and positive things about me, but that uh, goes to what you just said. I think if people, and we've seen it, we see it all the time, I think in law enforcement where people are so focused on what the next job is, what they need to do to get the next job. They forget to just do a really good job where they're at. And that's one thing I've always tried to do is whatever job I have, um, it, if there's things inside my circle of influence that I can make better or improve or change or have an impact on, then I do that. But if there's things outside of my circle, I'm not going to waste time on those things because they're outside of my, my control and they're going to take away from the things that I can have an impact on. And I've always tried to focus on those things. And then the next opportunities just seem to present themselves at, at times. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it's there's something about people who are constantly focused on all the stuff they can't control. Yeah. They render themselves powerless. That, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I've, I have a major downstairs right now who, phenomenal guy. And I tell you what, he is a prime example of someone. And I've said it numerous times. He does an exceptional job, things that are underneath his control. And you know what? He's grown, been promoted a number of times, and he continues to build that circle to where he's now the number two guy in the entire agency um, because he he just has done such a great job piece by piece. And is that the fellow who was your partner back in the day? No, not not my partner back in the day. No, my uh, the fellow who was my partner is currently the Homeland Security Director for the for the state. Ah, OK, OK. Uh, so, so, so you guys are you, you guys are coming along together, though. Yeah, we, we we've our careers kind of have paralleled each other. And and uh, we've always been friends first and coworkers second. And that's another thing. You know, like right now, I'm his boss because he's the Homeland Security Director. Right. Uh, I tell you what, you can truly test a friendship when you're in a boss and subordinate relationship. And uh, this guy's a great friend and he's a great employee. And he never, we never let the two things cross. You know, if there's something I need to improve upon, he tells me. If there's something he needs to improve upon, I tell him, you know what, we might go fishing the next day. It's just, just a phenomenal friend. Yeah, that's 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 a great thing to have. And it's 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 hard because you've got to do your job. You've got to meet your responsibilities and you don't want to undermine the friendship. I always tell people that the best way to protect a friendship, if you are that person's boss, is make darn sure nothing goes wrong at work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's such a great worker. I mean, he's just a phenomenal person. So he, he does a great job at work and we're lucky to have him. Um, so, so I, I want to, uh, well, you and I got to know each other when you were a Colonel in, in the highway patrol, when you were the superintendent and your commitment to leadership, um, and, and to raising the, uh, the, the skills of, of your leaders, uh, was, was so vivid to me. And, you know, uh, we spent a bunch of time together and I remember, uh, I spent time with, uh, one of your guys who was a firearms trainer and um, and he just uh, uh, spoke volumes about your approach to leadership 
and uh, how you don't just lead by example, but you spell it out and you make things clear to people. And, um, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, how would you describe your, what, I mean, what makes you such a great leader? What, cause you, as you said, you're, you, you, you're sort of introverted. I mean, I would say you're a very friendly people oriented guy, um, but you, you keep your own counsel. You, you have the ability to keep your cards close to the vest, right? Yeah. Uh, but what, what, how, how do you walk that fine line? Well, you know, and I can't remember where I learned it, but it goes back to my days when I was at the crime lab and having to read all those books and go to all those trainings and learning and picking what I've done over the course of my career is I've picked things that I think are highly successful from a lot of different people. I've picked a lot of good things from you, Bruce. I've picked a lot right. of good things from Colin Powell, General Colin Powell. I mean, there's so many people that I've picked good things from. And then I, I, I test to see what exactly works here with, with us. And so I've always found that expectations are critically important because if you don't set out exactly what your expectations are of your employees, they're just going to make up their own. And so they might have a policy or procedure they know to follow, but really what's expected of them day in and day out when they come to work. If we want people to come to work with a good attitude, we need to tell them when you come to the office each day and you show up at the front door, you need to have a good attitude on. And if you can't, maybe you need to stay home or redirect or go to an office where no one's going to see you because nobody deserves to work with somebody who's you know, a bad attitude. And then the backside of it is, is that when you set those expectations, you then have to hold people accountable by a confronting them when they're outside of the boundaries, you know, when they're not following through with what you said, as far as how your philosophy and the things that you expect of them as employees and as leadership in the organization and, and teach them and train them. And by doing that, they figure out real quickly because most people, in fact, I think almost everybody I've ever worked with wants to do a really good job and they want to do what the boss expects of them. But if we never tell them what's expected, you know, it's just not as good of a work environment, I don't believe. And so I've done it for years, ever since 2011. When we hire new employees, I meet with all of them. Um, now that I'm in public safety, we have, you know, over 500 employees. So I just meet with all the new employees twice a year. But I meet with all new employees and I tell them, hey, these are the things that I expect of you as an employee of the Department of Public Safety. And I go through all those things. And then they know it. They know what the rules are. And so when they go home and start doing their job, they know where they fit. And if they fall outside of those rules and expectations, then again, it's our job to hold them accountable and confront them and make sure we bring them back on track. But I do the same thing with management and leadership that you know people expect a certain quality or qualities from their leadership. And so we wanna make sure we're providing those leadership qualities. But again, if I don't tell my leaders what's expected of them and how I want them to lead the organization, we're going to have, you know, 50, 60 leaders that are doing it all a different way. And that doesn't create synergy. It doesn't create uh, us working together. And we're essentially not going to provide the best service that we can because we've got people operating on a bunch of different ways. What's happening over in this squad might not be happening in that squad, but what happens in this program might not happen in that program and we get inconsistencies built in and then people are, well, why can they do this? Why can I do that? Why can't this, the other thing? Right. And people go manager shopping and so on. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 And so, well, I want to go work for that guy who who lets people off the hook and you don't want people who want to be let off the hook. Right. right? Right. Um, So, so uh, 
You know, I, I, I agree with you. I think that the more you spell out priorities, ground rules, marching orders, um, the more you focus on, hey, here's what we want you to do. Here's what we expect you to do. Uh, then the confrontations take on a different tone, right? That, that they don't have to be so negative. They're more, at least at, at the beginning, they're about reminding people, these are the priorities. These are the ground rules. These are the marching orders. Have, do you have um, any recollections of, um, of, of situations you ran into where you did have to kind of come down like a ton of bricks? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so many times really over the course of a leadership career, do you have to work through a, a difficult situation with employees because, you know, whatever, whatever got to the point where, where you're at. But one particular example I'll, I'll give you. This is when I was the colonel of the higher patrol. I had a senior leader in the organization that uh, when we had our team meetings would voice his opposition to some of the things that we were trying to incorporate in the organization. I don't like doing this. I think this is going to be a, a dead end. I think this is going to cause negative outcomes. These are the reasons why he's telling me, I don't think we should do this. Well, at the end of the day, I collect input from everybody, which I'm, I'm proud of doing that. And we make a decision. And I always had the expectation, give me your input, even if it's different than what I want to do. Tell me why. But at the end of the day, when I make a decision, we have to walk out the door like we're all on the same page, like it's our idea. You have to carry that. Because if you go back to the troops, everyone they're going to pick up on it in a second. Hey, this guy doesn't support that decision. We're just doing it because he said so. And then people aren't going to do it. They're not going to do it with, with their whole heart and mind. And they're going to see division among senior leadership. And so this particular individual, I found out in social settings, was talking negatively about some of the decisions we were making. Not my idea. They're just making us do this. And here's all the reasons it's going to go bad. And this... People are going to die because this decision is so bad, you know. And so I, when I became aware of that, um, you know, I can't remember who said it, but somebody did other than me. Uh, having difficult conversations doesn't get easier with time. <laughs> and so I invited him into my office and I said, hey, here's the information that I have. Um, first off, is it accurate? You know, and to his credit, he said, yeah, it's accurate. I don't agree with it. And yes, in that social setting and probably others, I was saying some things. And I said, well, you, you just need to make a decision as to whether or not you can get on board and support, you know, what I'm trying to achieve within the organization as a colonel of the highway patrol. And if you can't get on board and you can't support that, I'm okay with that. It, you think differently than me. If you can't get on board, we can figure it out. You just can't have this position because I need somebody in this position that can disagree with me, that can tell me all the reasons why it's a bad idea, but at the end of the day, supports the final decision. A lot of times, it will be theirs, you know, but sometimes it's not. Right. So, so he and I had a conversation. It was, it was, it was hard. It was probably appreciated by both of us. And ultimately he decided that, you know, this probably wasn't the position for him. And uh, we found a, a, another opportunity for him for a landing spot and, and things went fine from there. But um, did he stay all, in the highway patrol? Just not as a leader. Yeah. Just stayed in a, he, he, he retired and then, and then was had the opportunity through an application process and came back on and worked in a, in another, another department outside of, of headquarters. But, you know, good, a good person, good person had the right idea, but just couldn't get on board with me being the Colonel, you know? And, 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 and was it, did he have a conflict with you or was it that he was just, he could not get on board with these policies? Well, I think it was just such a change and, and he had been around for a long time. So I think he took him maybe a little personal, like, you know, 
we're changing something that I created or something that I've been very vocal about supporting in the past. Now Craig's going to go change this. <clears throat> and, you know, that's hard on people. When you develop your own program and somebody comes in and, and, and is now the leader above you and might make a change to what you thought was a really, really good idea, you know, it takes a special person to accept that and move on with the new idea. Uh, but it's critical in these senior roles when you do have, um, you know, new leadership or new organizational uh, priorities that uh, you have to make a decision. Can I get on it? Can I really support that? And if you can, great. There's a lot of people that can, a lot of people that can. But if you can't, um, you're going to do nothing other than harm the organization if you go out and, and, and don't support that. And just in terms of a leadership technique, what I like about that is two things. One, um, it, it aligns with clarifying expectations, right? So, uh, you know, you could say you're beating a dead horse because he already knew this was the decision. But hey, let me drill down a little more. Like, not only are we doing this, but you're, you're not necessarily saying, you know, hey, you can't, you have to stop bad mouthing. But more to the point, you're saying, my expectation is, you are going to get on board and actively support this, right? And you can say that about, you know, somebody who comes in late, hey, you know we start at 8 o'clock around here. But let me be clear, um, you know, if, 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 if you can't get on board and actively support that 8 a.m. start time, right? Or, hey, I know you know that we have to treat people with respect. You cannot curse at people say, when you pull them over on the highway. Um, so, you know, you could say, Dag Nabbit and gee whiz, now I need you to get on board with that and fully support that. That is a technique. Uh, maybe that does make difficult conversations easier. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it does. You know, it, it's, I think sometimes folks think that it will curb innovation if you clearly align priorities, expectations, because Folks are going to be, um, you know, only doing what you say, but that it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, when you set expectations, it's a broad gamut of the operating rules, so to speak. And what I, how I was, would always explain it to people and still do to this day is that there's a lot of different ways to get around the baseball field. There's a left field line. There's a right field line. Those are the expectations that you keep it inside of there. If you get yeah. outside, we'll bring you back because there's a, there's a lot of different ways to get there. So don't let it curb innovation. Don't let it uh, limit your ability to bring new ideas to the table. These are just operating rules that we need to make sure we follow because we want to have the culture in the organization of a certain reflection. We want to be- yeah, and if it goes, Look, if, if it goes inside the left field line or the right field line, it's still a base hit. If it goes into foul territory, it's a foul ball. Right. Exactly. Sorry. That's a strike. Yep. Um, so- uh, yeah, I, I like that. Um, and, and yeah, of course, I mean, in, in a way, I mean, you don't want people to get too creative about law enforcement, right? I mean, you know, they got to, for example, um, observe people's Fourth Amendment rights and so on, right? Uh, so, so, you know, yes, you can get creative. You don't want to get too creative. Well, this is true. This, this, very true. But, you know, there's, when I was a colonel of the higher patrol, there was about 60 different organizational changes that we made in that eight and a half years. And a lot of those changes were the change to process, how we do things internally, how we communicate, um, 
different types of equipment. You know, we never had tasers prior to 2012. We didn't have a records management system. And so I feel and still do to this day that it's very important for leadership to solicit the ideas of the practitioners out there doing the work because they're the ones that are going to benefit from what you're, you're implementing. And so I, I take a lot of pride in asking people for their thoughts on things before. Now, now don't get me wrong, Bruce, sometimes in law enforcement, decisions need to be made right now. And you can't take the time to get people's input because people will get hurt and we can make those. But there's not a lot of those decisions in a leadership role where you can't take the time to solicit the input from those around you to help make help you make a better decision. And so yeah, and, 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 and and they might not all agree. So somebody's got to make the decision and guess who makes that decision? The boss. Right. That's right. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and, and so now you're uh, not just so you have a uh, an even higher level role where you're where the, the highway patrol reports into you. Um, but other parts of the South Dakota uh, uh, infrastructure report into you just just so people understand um, what else uh, are you now in charge of the Department yeah. of Homeland Security. Right. Yeah, exactly. So the Department of Homeland Security, I've got the state driver licensing program. State Victim Services, which again, just saying it gives me goosebumps. That's why I got into this. That's why my my career developed so well, because I really enjoyed serving victims. We have the Office of Emergency Management for the state. We have the Division of Wildland Fire, which I never thought that I'd be supervising firefighters, but I'm telling you, they are phenomenal. I mean, they're just, they're public servants to the core, and they're out in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And when there's a wildfire, they will put on their gear and they will hike across mountains to dig lines and prevent people from losing property or from people getting hurt. Phenomenal. And so you finally got your hands on the wildlife. That's right. I finally, well, yeah, some, to some extent. Yes. Yes. Um, and then we also have the, uh, the state fire marshal. So any fires that happen that need to be investigated in our state, the state fire marshal falls under me. Um, just a lot of, a lot of neat programs. The higher patrols, is still clearly the most visible and probably the, and is the largest organization. Um, but there's just so many cool things that we have and have the opportunity to have an impact on in public safety in our state. And really, I, I go back to my crime lab leadership days, preparing me to be the public safety director, the cabinet secretary, because there's so many of my employees, half of them that are never, that have never been and will never be law enforcement officers. And so had I never had the opportunity to lead folks and to achieve things outside of the law enforcement, you know, day-to-day -day activities, I don't think I ever could have done this job. Um, and so it's just been, it's just been great. It's, I, I have no regrets on my career. I have no regrets uh, on, on the, the people, the things that I've achieved and the people that I've worked with that have helped me achieve that. And again, I, I don't do it enough, but uh, I have, I, I have a wife of almost 26 years, Cammie. And I have two daughters. One's going to graduate in a couple of weeks and one's a junior in high school. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you a story about my junior in high school daughter. When they went to middle school, they, when they were in grade school, I'd go eat with them. And I was the colonel of the higher patrol. So I'd go there and eat with them and with my uniform on. I'd have my hat on. Oh, cool. They loved it. Well, then my older daughter goes to middle school and she, she really didn't want me to come to lunch with her anymore, which was fine. I expected, but I, I pushed the envelope a little bit. Well, then when my younger daughter gets into middle school, I remember asking her, you know, can I come and eat lunch with you tomorrow? And you know what she said? You can come eat with me if you wear your uniform. <laughs> That's so yeah. wonderful. I mean, 
because she was so proud of it and so proud of the work that I did and knows that her friends probably thought it was kind of cool. And maybe, cool. yeah, and maybe we'll have an opportunity to, to hire some of those kids someday. <laughs> Right. Like, like, uh, and they'll remember that. Um, and, and so I, I, I let me just, uh, I, I have, a, uh, just three, uh, uh, questions that I want to make sure I, I get answered. One is, do, do you have, I mean, it can't just be good luck that you had such, um, phenomenal metrics during your leadership of the highway patrol when it comes to, uh, good outcomes and sort of, a um, a relative lack of bad outcomes. Do you, I mean, what was the explanation? Yeah, I mean, I tie that to I had excellent leadership to rely on, right? I mean, I've always had some exceptional leaders that I could learn from. Um, I also had a lot of exceptional employees that were out there and wanted to do the right thing. And so when you have that combination of excellent leadership ahead of you and you have excellent followers behind you that want to do the right thing for the right reasons at the right time, you can achieve a lot of cool things. And that's that I think is the secret. You got to have the right team uh, at all levels. And sometimes that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and energy uh, to get them flowing and rowing in the same direction. Uh, and it's it's communication alignment. If you if, if the punchline is having people wanting and knowing how to do the right things in the right ways at the right time, uh, I'm going to say a lot of that is coming from the top. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. Um, and, and okay, here's another one, which is now you're leading leaders who lead leaders, who lead leaders, who lead leaders, who lead leaders. Um, how's that going? (laughs) Well, you know, the, I think it's going pretty well, uh, because of, you know, the, the way that things are going and the feedback that I get and, and, and whatnot all throughout the organization and from the public, but really the philosophy doesn't change. People always say, God, I could never do that job. I mean, I could never do that job. It's like, if you just focus on what you can control and keep true to who you are and follow um, what's always worked for you and be willing to learn and be willing to adjust, you can do anything. And I, ne- I never bought into it when I was a kid. You know, everybody's, oh, you can be anything you want. You can do whatever you want. I truly believe people can be whatever they want. It just takes some discipline. It takes goals. It takes um, the ability to, to learn from your mistakes and not make them again. I mean, there's all sorts of things that go into it, but I really believe you can achieve whatever you want in this world. There's that many opportunities out there. And 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 uh, despite the fact that this is now a political appointment, I think one of the things that's so cool about how you operate is you are just staying focused on serving the public. Yeah, that's right. I, I Again, public safety is in my circle, and that's 100% what I'm focused on at work. Uh, I don't get wrapped up in all the other stuff that might be going on with other departments or other programs. Um, really stay focused on my team. I want to make sure that uh, we, I look at it as a customer service perspective. You know, we have customers to serve in the public. They're coming to get a new driver license. They're getting stopped by a trooper. They're, you know, they have a flood go through their community. They rely on the emergency management to come and help them get back on their feet. But we as leaders are, providing a customer, a level of customer service to those we lead. They expect things from us too. We have to be timely with them. We have to get them the feedback they need so they can make a decision. If they need equipment, we have to make sure we clear the path to get them the equipment they need to better do their job. And so I look at it from the perspective of I'm in the business of customer service as well, even though I'm leading 
a bunch of leaders and a bunch of people. Um, it's just, that's what we do. And, and, and do you have any uh, final words of wisdom to somebody who's saying, well, I want to be like him when I grow up? I'm just saying dream big and don't be afraid to take some risk. You know, I became the higher patrol superintendent at the age of 37. And I had people call me and say, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, any one of 250 employees does something wrong. I might be the guy that's out of the job the next day. Right. And so, but I took the risk because I thought that it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to go to the organization that first hired me after the department of corrections and have a positive influence on not only the service that we provide in the state, but to able to help people achieve their goals and things that they want to achieve in their careers. Dream big and serve the public. Craig Price, Secretary of the Department of Public Safety for the state of South Dakota. Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Yeah, thank you very much, Bruce. I appreciate the opportunity and, and I hope you have a great day. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.